Thank you, Gene Ellen and Bert. Good morning, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Obadiah chapter, it's only one chapter, verse 1, Obadiah 1. And the first session will be, as you can see on the board, we'll be looking at uh, verse 16, and the second session, verse 17. Verse 16, we'll see that the nations who attack Judah will no longer exist. And uh, in the second session, we'll be looking at verse 17, as I said, and we'll see that uh, we'll start talking about uh, prophecy uh, related to the, the restoration and regeneration of Israel, where it's, uh, verse 17 is going to teach us that the remnant of the descendants of Jacob, the remnant of Israel, will be holy and possess their land inheritance. So we'll start to talk about uh, getting into the millennial reign uh, starting uh, on the second session. So and uh, the last several verses are all prophetic anyway. So that's what we'll be looking at here this morning. Good to see you all. And uh, just a, uh, if you could uh, keep in your prayers, I, I, uh, Rachel and, uh, um, I know Bert's going to talk about in the prayer, uh, but uh, Rachel and uh, Jeff, their daughter, Cora, was, is back, was in the back of the emergency room, so she's in the hospital, and she's got pneumonia. Uh, so, anyway, she doesn't look as, she looks better than she did last time when she was there, so, and, uh, so you keep her in prayer. And uh, so, uh, I, th- I think without um, uh, further ado, uh, let's take that moment of silent prayer. This is our custom, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God, because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit who causes us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship, of course, by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, Colossians 3.16, to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. And uh, just remember, we, when we approach the, the scriptures also, when we come to Bible class, you know, we all have troubles, uh, tr- you know, trials and tribulations that we're dealing with, maybe family problems, personal problems, health problems, whatever might be distracting to you. Uh, do what First Peter 5, 7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. And also another thing, and I know pretty much you guys all know this, but just also we got these classes being broadcast and they go throughout the world in the very, uh, websites and podcasts that we have. But uh, when we come to Bible class, Bible class is not simply about dealing with our issues, our problems, and God will deal with our problems. But a lot of times, God wants you and I to listen to what he has to say about himself. It's about the Lord. It's about him, about learning who God is, his character and nature. And then we get into, he'll talk to us about our situation, how we need to uh, walk with him and to bring glory to him. So uh, we come to Bible class. We have our corp. This is our corporate worship. And, uh, you know, a lot of talk about revival in our country and uh, with these uh, different things going on in the country. But revival, if you always remember, any great revival that has ever happened in America's history or anywhere in history, if you just go right back to the beginning of the church, it starts with the communication of the Word of God. It starts off with the communication of the Word of God. Uh, music is a great thing, and it's, it's uh, you know, I love music too, as you know. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, it all starts with the t- communication of the Word of God and the, the, the church putting it into practice. Yes, we want numbers added to our church, but we also want uh, the character that we already have the Christians in the ministry to grow and more Christ, greater Christ-likeness. So if we're going to have a revival, it's going to start with the Word of God in the church, putting it into practice in their life. And uh, it's, uh, music is one expression of our worship to the Lord, but the highest form of worship is listening to the, the teaching of the Word of God. Remember the apostles, after Peter evangelized, uh, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews were added to their number. Just like that. And then it says in Acts 2.42, to the end of that chapter, it tells us what they concentrated on. And the first thing on the list was the teaching of the Word of God. Because you can't serve, you can't give, you can't do anything, uh, write a good song, Christian song, without the Word of God. Everything starts off. That's the foundation of any great revival in any great church. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Heavenly Father, it's a great honor and privilege that you've given to us to study your almighty word. We thank you so much, Father, for your grace, your mercy, your love. We thank you, Father, for your work on our behalf in eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the Cross, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. We thank you, Father, for the word of God and the gift of the Spirit who helps us understand and apply and reproduce the character of Christ in our life when we obey what he's teaching us in Scripture. So, Father, we thank you for these great translations, modern translations that you've given to us, and we know what you have to say to us. And we just pray, Father, that uh, in this study today that we'll learn more about your character and nature and uh, how you govern the nations and the future that you have for this world with uh, your, uh, the nation that you elected uh, in eternity past to be the conduit to bring blessing to the world. We thank you, Father, for our leaders. We pray, Father, for President Biden and his cabinet, the executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, local governments, military, those in covert operations, those who are uh, in other paramilitary organizations like the police. We just lift them up. We pray that you give our leaders the wisdom and the moral coverage to lead this country and raise up more individuals in our government with establishment principles, expose them to the gospel of those who are not saved, and doctrine to those who are. I just thank you for everyone that is here in this uh, service here this morning, and I just thank you for each and every person and also those who might be listening uh, through the, the, the various websites and podcasts that you've given to us. Father, I pray that they would receive the necessary, necessary spiritual nourishment by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, help them to learn, understand, and apply what they're being taught. Please break down any barriers that sin and Satan has put up that is hindering that from happening. I also pray that you would empower me, help me to bring forth your full counsel to your pe people with humility, with reverence and respect and power, so that we can all continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, and bring glory to you, Father. So we just pray for this uh, uh, service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, you should be at Obadiah verse 1. Obadiah verse 1, as I've been doing, because it's only one chapter long, we'll read the entire uh, book, and then we'll be concentrating on verse 16 in this first session. And as I said before the opening prayer, we'll be concentrating on verse 17, which gets into the prophetic section of Obadiah. And the second session, we'll be concentrating on verse 17. So it says in Obadiah verse 1, I'm reading from the NIV, the vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go up against her for battle. This is the, uh, the 6th century B.C. Uh, this is after the Babylonian invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah, which resulted in the destruction of Judah, the deportation of the people throughout the uh, Mesopotamian regions of the world in Babylon. And so they were looking for justice, the remnant of Israel that was sitting in Babylon, and they would be there for 70 years. So Obadiah would give them encouragement. He echoed in this particular uh, book. He echoes Jeremiah 49, 7 through 23, which sounds very, very, it echoes it. It's pretty similar to what Joe, uh, Obadiah is telling us. So all the nations throughout the Mesopotamian and Mediterranean regions of the world in the 6th century B.C. are being roused to fight against Edom uh, uh, and of course, God would, this envoy would be an angelic envoy who would be actually a fallen angel because Satan has the authority over the Gentile nations of the world, including our own. And he's the God of this world, Satan, 2 Corinthians 4 4. All the world is under his power, 1 John 5 19. And God right now is trying to call out a people for herself. It's the bride of Christ, the church, uh, right now as we speak to every ethnicity, language group throughout the world, every nation. He's trying to uh, uh, pull out of these, uh, these godless, pagan, unregenerate nations a people for himself. And we're uh, right here, we're being witness to that, that God's doing that right now as we speak. So it says in verse 2, See, I will make you small, Edom, among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? As we pointed out, that's a reference to their geographical location, which uh, in the ancient world, in that 6th century B.C., made them virtually impregnable. So God's saying, it's not going to be a problem for me. Though, verse 4, he says, though you soar like the eagle... And make your nest among the stars. From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, 
Oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? Yes, in both, uh, uh, both rhetorical questions. But, verse 16, the contrast is this. How Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasure, treasures will be pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And that day, declares the Lord, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, the Babylonians, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother and the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah and their day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster, the day of the Lord. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors and the day of their trouble. So verses 10 through 14, as we pointed out, present nine indictments against the nation of Edom for their cruel treatment and betrayal of their blood relatives, the, the Jews of the southern kingdom of uh, Judah. And so those, are the, those nine indictments we see in verses 10 through 14 serve as the basis for the prophecy of their judgment, Edom's uh, destruction, and verses 2 through nine. So God always, you'll see this in the minor prophets, you see in the greater prophets, like Isaiah or uh, Jeremiah, they present, God uses these individuals to present uh, indictments against nations, whether it's Israel, Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, or Edom, or Babylon. You see this in, uh, at the, in Jeremiah, quite frankly. He is the same thing with Babylon and Jeremiah. At the end of that book, uh, he talks about the, the indictments, he gives the indictments against Babylon and he, as the basis for the prophecy of their destruction. And then we get into verse 15. He says, the day of the Lord is near. That means it's imminent for all nations. And that's for all the nations in context, in this context, uh, of the, all the nations in the 6th century B.C. who were involved in the attack on Judah. Uh, that coalition of nations led by Babylon, Edom was one of them. He says, the day of the Lord is near for those nations. And so he says, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Divine retribution. Or in other words, uh, you reap what you sow. Uh, this is the, the lex talionis, as we pointed out. The punishment fits the crime. And, you know, you know, Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. Treat others the way you'd want to be treated. And so nations, it's, it's true for nations as, as well. God holds nations accountable. So as you treat another nation, so it will be done to you. And so Babylon got what they deserved because that's how they treated other nations and they were treated accordingly by Medo-Persia and a coalition of nations that they led uh, in, the, uh, in the 6th century B.C. And so then we have verse 16. It says, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink Continually, We'll talk about what this verse is all about, what this means. So they will drink and drink and be as if they have never been. But then we get into the prophetic section and the, and the remaining of the, the book. But on Mount Zion, talking about the Temple Mount, which have the dome, it has the Dome of the Rock there today, the Muslim mosque. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance and it will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. And Esau will be stumble, uh, be stubble, and they will be set on fire and destroy him. And there'll be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken, and we'll talk about that. It's tied into Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 to the end of that chapter, where there's going to be a resurrection of the nation of Edom, like there was of Israel for 2,000 years. Uh, the nation of Israel did not have a, a central government or geographical boundaries, but in 1948 that all changed. And that's going to be true of Edom. And so actually where Edom is today is where the kingdom of Jordan is. 
Okay? And we'll talk about that when we get to it. So it says in verse 19, people from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. This is all prophetic. This is the millennial reign. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles, the remnant of Israel during the, uh, the tribulation period, who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath and the exiles from Jerusalem who in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. And then this great uh, statement here at the, end of verse, at the end of the book, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Uh, the, the Net Bible's translation of verse 21 is uh, even better. It says, those who have been delivered will be during the tribulation period by Christ at his second advent will go up on Mount Zion in order to rule over Esau's mountain. And then it says, the Lord will reign as king. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven will take place. That, that, that prayer that we pray for and God's kingdom will be established. All the nations right now are just working toward their destruction as they go for their day of the Lord, which is yet future to the rapture of the resurrection of the church, which is imminent. It could happen at any moment. It could happen right as we speak. Now, as we see, my translation of verse 16 on the board goes as follows. For just as each and every one of you drank on my holy mountain, so each and every one of these nations will drink continually. Indeed, each and every one of them will certainly drink and will certainly gulp down. Consequently, each of them will certainly enter into the state of being like they never existed. If you look at your, your translation of verse 16 in the NIV, it says, for just as you have drunk, notice that you there, we'll talk about that you there, it's very important, for just as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and they will gulp down. They will be as though they have never been. Uh, that was the NIV, uh, Net Bible, excuse me. Here's the NIV. And the NIV goes, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they've never been. The ESV, a great translation as well, I'm giving you some uh, translations of verse 16, says in verse 16, for just as you drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. So we have three prophetic declarations in verse 16. Now, the first is what we call a comparative clause. That means it's asserting that just as each of the people of Judah, they're the you at the very beginning, just as you drank on my holy mountain, and notice God says that holy mountain is his. Notice the possession. Don't look at, don't miss that. Look at what he says in, in the NIV. It says on the board, I'll, I'll show it to you here in the NIV. It says, just as you drank, he's talking to the remnant of Israel, Judah, that's in Babylon. Just as you drank on my holy hill, the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, and he, he, they drank his wrath at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. So all the nations who were involved in that, like Babylon, will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they've never been. So there are three prophetic declarations, or three declarations there, I should say, three prophetic ones. We're all fulfilled in history. The first is a comparative clause, which asserts that just as each of the people of Judah drank from the cup of God's wrath on God's holy mountain, so each of the nations which attack them and destroy them as a national entity will drink continually from this same cup. The second is actually advancing upon the first. And it asserts, as we just read, that each of these nations which took part in the Babylonian invasion of Judah in 586 B.C. would certainly drink from the cup of God's wrath and will certainly gulp it down. The third is a result clause which asserts that each one of these Gentile nations who destroyed Judah in 586 B.C. mercilessly, as a they destroyed them as a national entity they, these nations will certainly enter into the state of being like they never existed. Every one of these prophetic statements has been fulfilled in history. This is a great, great, great passage to show the non-Christian that this Bible, is in, this Bible, this book we call the Bible, is inspired by God. I told you this in the, in the past, and I've said this in my broadcast with Winthrop Bible Ministry. 
Bible ministries over the years, there's a group of great scholars and, and biblical scholars in America and Western Europe today. And they are the, uh, the idea that we can't talk about the Bible with a non-Christian today, especially in America and Western Europe, because they don't have any frame of reference to the Bible. Whereas 50 years ago, 60 years ago, or 100 years ago for sure, that you had, even if you were a non-believer, you had a frame of reference. You knew about the Bible. Uh, you, you read it in a church. The early, the early, uh, the, the men who did our Constitution and did the Bill of Rights, those founding fathers of our nation, not all of them were believers. They were, a lot of them were deists like Jefferson. And they had a healthy respect, though, for the Bible. In fact, they took many ideas from the Bible and put it into our Constitution and Bill of Rights. So they were respectful of the Bible, whereas today we have in the public discourse, nobody's respectful of the Bible. Very few people are respecting the Bible. You don't see it in the, in the media, of course. So they're all saying, these biblical scholars are saying, well, we just, we cannot talk to them on their, on, uh, with the Bible with these non-believers because they have no frame of reference. They don't, they're not, they don't know anything about the Bible. And so uh, I say to them, baloney, says the guy from Massachusetts who doesn't have a theological degree. Okay, here's why. Because I got saved, and a lot of other people I know were Roman Catholics in Massachusetts, where actually there was a great revival there back in the 80s and the 1990s and 2000s where I came from, where you had Roman Catholics who knew nothing about the Bible. That we weren't taught the Bible, okay? We listened to the Pope and the Cardinals and the priests. Nobody picked up a Bible, even today. They don't do it. And yet we got evangelized through prophecy about the tribulation, the rapture, the millennial reign of Christ, all of that stuff we were evangelized by. We didn't have any frame of reference. And so you had next year in Pastor McLaughlin's ministry, we had Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday evenings, our Bible class, expository just like this, and Sunday morning, Sunday evenings. And I was at every one of those classes. And I was one of many people. It was not unusual for have on a, on a, on a Tuesday night, 150, 200 people there. That's, and that was going on for a long time. That's a revival. Because it started with the word of God, it affected people. And nobody, nobody knows about it. Nobody talks about it. Because nobody knows about it. Okay? Now listen to me. We see that we go, we, we, I was evangelized by a guy who was telling me about the rapture, the tribulation period, antichrist, the unbelievers. They, you even see it on secular television, on the so-called History Channel and these other, these other uh, things that we have. And they talk about what the Bible prophesies and Nostradamus. People want to know the future. That's why they're, they're always uh, looking at their horoscopes. And I used to be like that when I was a teenager, before I got saved. People want to know the future. Well, the Bible, there's nothing like it. And I always say, let's sit down and let's look at the Bible. And you look at the first 15 verses of this book fulfilled in minute accuracy. Verse 16, fulfilled in minute accuracy. All those nations, and Edom being one of them, and Babylon, where are they today? They're gone. This was prophesied in the 6th century B.C., that will get a person's attention, okay? And so you can evangelize the non-believer with the Bible, even if they don't have a frame of reference, simply by talking to them about prophecy. So each of these prophetic declarations in verse 16 present the reason for the previous prophetic declaration at the end of verse 15. What does it say in verse 15 in your translations? It says, the day of the Lord is near for all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. So that verse is teaching us that just as the Edomites had treated the people of Judah during the Babylonian invasions, so they're going to be treated in the exact same manner. In other words, their cruel treatment of the people of Judah during their time of adversity as a nation will return on their own head. Heads. So verse 16 is giving the reason for what we see in verse 15. Now, if you notice in verse 16, it says, Just as you drank 
on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually, and they will drink and drink and be as if they've never been. Now, uh, you could, that says holy hill in your translations. It could be translated holy mountain. And that particular, my holy mountain, if you notice, he says the possessive pronoun. He says uh, in verse 16, my holy hill or my holy mountain. That's God's possession. You see what's on there right now? You can't even go up there and pray as a Jew. In 1967, which they're trying to give all this land back that, that Israel acquired during that, that attack. Israel, or Egypt attacked uh, uh, Israel in 1967, the Six-Day War. Read about it. It's fascinating. Fascinating. And so they went and attacked them. Egypt it was, it was attacking. It was a sneak attack. And Israel wiped out the Egyptian Air Force on the ground. They, they were, they, and they went all the way to Egypt. And they, for the last, whatever it is, 50, 60 years, they've been trying to give that land back to, the, to, to, to people which, is, which Israel used with their own, uh, got acquired with their own blood. How would you feel like that if you were Americans and acquired certain land and they spilled blood, okay, to get that land, to protect that land, you'd feel resentment toward giving it back. That's why I, you know, I like Netanyahu because he's 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 uh, he's not a, a, a liberal who's living in a fantasy of uh, of, a, of a, a utopia on earth without you know, without Jesus Christ. So not that he's a believer, but my holy mountain—that's God's possession. And that Temple Mount was taken by Israel in '67, and they grabbed it. But Johnson and the Russians were about to go to war over it. There was going to be another, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, another crisis that erupted. Russia's in China, Russia and the United States got together, negotiated, and told Israel, you got to let them keep the Temple Mount. That Dome of the Rock's there. One day it's not going to be there. Why? Because that's God's mountain. That mountain is defiled. In fact, even if the, you took the Muslim mosque out of there, it would still be defiled by its people who are not regenerate, born again, and saved. But there's coming a time, and it's, it's close. Once we're gone at the rapture, which is imminent, it's much closer than it was 2,000 years ago when Paul was talking. It's imminent. So when that happens, we got the tribulation period, we have the second advent of Christ, which ends it, and then we get the millennial reign of Christ, and then the mountain will be sanctified. It'll be holy to the Lord, dedicated to worshiping him. And it's not going on today as we speak. So my holy mountain is a reference to Mount Zion upon which Israel's and later the southern kingdom of Judah's capital city was built, which is indicated by the reference to Mount Zion. So the word Zion there, it was originally named, applied to the hill where the ancient Jebusite city of Jerusalem was located. So David got this Jebusite city in, during his day and age. So after the city was conquered by David, Sometime around 1000 BC, he had a tabernacle built, and eventually the Ark of the Covenant was moved there. And so, as a result, Zion was associated with the Temple Mount. And even after the Ark was moved to the Temple constructed by Solomon on Mount Moriah, a neighboring hill. Ultimately, the use of the term Zion was extended to include the entire city of Jerusalem as well as its inhabitants. And that's how it's being used there. So therefore, we see my holy mountain in verse 16 refers to the Temple Mount as being set apart exclusively for the worship of the God of Israel. And right now, Israel uh, geographically will not look the same during the second advent millennial reign of Christ. Because when Christ comes back at his second advent, he's going to land on the Mount of Olives after orbiting the earth, and I believe also... Uh, he'll be uh, where Edom is today. He will actually uh, kill the Antichrist down there. There's a passage in Habakkuk. One day we'll study that passage, Habakkuk 3. It's poetic uh, prophecy. He himself will kill the Antichrist. In fact, it says he'll, from head to toe, he'll sp split him wide open. And so he's going to, uh, going to have blood on his garments as he comes out of Basra, which is where Edom was, where Jordan is today. And at night, Isaiah 63 talks about this. And they'll say, where did you get the blood on your garments? And you say, for my enemies. So he's going to be involved in hand-to-hand -hand combat himself. Of course, he's omnipotent, and he'll destroy. The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, has now said, 
I am the Lion of Judah, and now I've come to make war against my enemies. Now is the time to make peace with him. How do you make peace with Jesus? You kiss the, the son. You kiss his feet. You worship him. You trust in him as Savior. Otherwise, you are under the wrath of God, not only for the tribulation period you've lived that long, but also the wrath of God in the lake of fire. So he is a God of grace, and he's a God of loving kindness and patient suffering. But that's not eternal suffering. He's patient, he's long-suffering, but he's not eternal suffering. There's an end to his patience, and I will tell you right now, because the, the Spirit says this in the Scriptures, he's running out of patience. He's running out of patience. So he's patient, but his patience is coming to an end. So the, the reference here to drinking here in Ob Obadiah 16 is a metaphor for experiencing God's wrath, which refers to his righteous indignation and it appears in several places in the Old Testament. Psalm 60, verse 3. Psalm 75, verse 8. Isaiah 51, 17. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 29, just to name a few. So this reference to drinking, again, in Obadiah 16, it's a metaphor. And it it's refers to experiencing God's wrath, which is upon the entire world. That's what Paul taught us in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. First, he goes at the Gentiles. The Gentiles are under the wrath of God. And the Jews, in verse two, or chapter 2 of Romans, are under the wrath of God. Then in chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody's under the wrath of God. We come into this world physically alive but spiritually dead because of the imputation of Adam's sin. We're in desperate straits where there's an infinite chasm between the human race... And a holy God. And you, you cannot do five Hail Marys or Our Fathers are not going to get you in His good graces. Nor is it keeping the Mosaic Law going to get you in His good graces. Because no one has kept the law perfectly. He demands perfection. He demands perfection. We don't do that. We can't do that. As, we, as I told you, when they, they said, they showed the, the Sermon on the Mount to, to college students, when they read it in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, they were like, this is stupid. And they asked them why. Who can do this? That's right. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. That's what the law tries to tell us. It says, you are a sinner. Here's God who's holy. And there's an infinite gulf between the two of us. We're, we, there's bad news. We're under his wrath. That's the bad news. The good news means nothing if you don't tell people with the bad news. And telling people the bad news might make you unpopular. You might be ridiculed. You might be demonized, like I have over the years. But I'd rather them do that to me than have the blood on my hands where I didn't, I didn't have the courage to give them the gospel. Not that they can get saved without. They can get God and save them through somebody else. But my responsibility is to tell people the truth. And that's your responsibility. The good news, that's what the term gospel means, euangelion. They had it in the Roman Empire. Good news, the gospel was the emperor's birthday or some great battle was accomplished, victory in the battlefield, like in Philippi. Or wherever it was that Rome had victories, there would be a proclamation, good news, the gospel, euangelion. The gospel, the writers of the New Testament took it further. Jesus took it further and his apostles. The good news is that despite the fact that you're under the wrath of God, God sent his son into the world to live the life of perfection under the law that you and I couldn't do. And he suffered the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever. He satisfied God's justice and righteousness, his holiness. Now, Grace is wide open. Grace can flow to us. Unmerited blessings which flow from his attribute of love. A love. Grace doesn't flow to us unless Christ satisfies God's holy justice and holy righteousness and justice. So he does that. So now, non-meritorious blessings can flow to the sinner who simply trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior. You know, don't listen to me carefully. There are a lot of people who get justification wrong. And they don't, the Lordship Salvation people are everywhere. That's everywhere, that teaching. It's false doctrine. They miss up message passages that are discipleship passes with passages with justification passages or just a sanctification with justification. They don't understand the distinctions. So Jesus goes to Nicodemus. How he talks about, you've got to believe the great passage in John 3, 16 to 18. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him 
shall never perish but have eternal life. For the Father did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But before he says all that, he said, remember, remember Nicodemus, and he was a Jew who knew his Old Testament scriptures. Remember Numbers? When God was angry with the Israelites for their complaining, and he sent snakes among them, and they were killing the people, and Moses cried out, and Aaron, help us. He said, look it, get that snake, put it on the, on the uh, put it up there on the, uh, the staff, look it up, put it up there, and anybody who looks at that will be saved from the snake bites. How easy is it to get saved? He just told us. As easy as looking at something. Well, all you have to do is look to Jesus. It has to be that simple. We're spiritually dead. We can't do anything. The Holy Spirit actually, at our justification, he's helping us understand what the gospel means, the implications, so that we can make a decision to either accept or reject Jesus Christ as our Savior. And he, and he desires all people to be saved. That's another false doctrine going out there, that Christ only died for the elect. That's an attack on the integrity of God. He, you, you, you don't know the extent to which God loves his enemies. He died for people he knew would reject him. And still did it. Why? So there'd be no excuse. There's no excuse for anybody who rejects him. All you had to do was look to the Savior. What do you need to get saved? Is another thing very important. Because it's even doctrinal circles that are messed up. It's really sad. But here's how. There's a lot of Jesus out there that the people are preaching. Paul tells us, the, the gospel writers tell us what Jesus we're talking about. We're talking about the one who's God the Son, who became a human being, died on the cross according to the scriptures for our sins and was raised for our justification. There are some people, like the Gnostics, that say there's a Jesus, but he's not, he's not a human being. There's Jesus today being preached, but he's not God. You can't get saved if you don't get that straight that he's both God and man. And he's not a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I don't mean to be uh, whatever, but he's 100% deity and 100% humanity. Yeah, just because he's a human being, that doesn't diminish or uh, 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 distort his divine attributes and vice versa. The integrity of his divine attributes are not messed up one iota because he became a human being and vice versa. He's an eternal person who always existed. He veiled his human nature with, he veiled his divine nature, excuse me, with his human nature. And so he looked just like any other Jew. So he's a both God and man, and he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. You get a Jesus that doesn't rise from the dead, you're not getting saved. Because if he doesn't rise from the dead, then his death is meaningless. His death is meaningless. He died a stupid death, thinking he was somebody that he was not. Say, I gotta get that straight. That's all you need to get saved. Get the right Jesus to believe on, and you'll get saved. It's not how much faith you have, it's the object of your faith. Now, I have to say that, this stuff, which a lot of you might know, and it's justification stuff, but, it, that, but we all need to be reminded of this, how we got saved in the first place. Because false doctrine, I know this, because I'm dealing with this out there. The false doctrine of the Lordship Salvation people, who don't even have justification right, they're everywhere. And even it's infected doctrinal circles. And now I don't have to confess my sins in many places, it says. And they, these people were taught sound doctrine by good teachers. So we see that the wrath of God, everybody's under it in the human race. Not just the homosexual or the lesbian, but the liar, the thief, the, the self-righteous Pharisee, everybody's under the wrath of God. You can be as moral as you want, but if you don't believe in Jesus, you're gone, you're lost. There's no reason for any of that to take place. So the wrath of God, everybody's under it. So now, the first, if you look at the, uh, the uh, Obadiah 16 again, it says, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. So we see that first prophetic declaration in verse 16 indicates that the Edomites should never have truly, cruelly mistreated the people of Judah during the Babylonian invasion of 586 B.C. because now they, along with all the nations involved in this attack, will have to drink continually. 
from God's cup of wrath. It is comparing this particular declaration at the beginning of verse 16. It's comparing the people of Judah experiencing God's wrath during the Babylonian invasion of 586 B.C. with the nations who took part in this invasion against them experiencing the God, God's wrath continually. Now, as I tried to point out to you earlier, that second, you see that says, uh, you drank in verse 16, the second person plural actually means all of you. In fact, this, this is evidence that God is from Alabama. Uh, y'all is how it actually literally means in the Hebrew. Y'all, okay? And so all of you, or you're, if you're Massachusetts, all of you, or you all, if you're from the South, that's, he's talking about everybody that is a, a part of the remnant of Judah in Babylon. He's talking to them. So when it says that second person plural form of the verb shata, you drank, it appears in this first prophetic declaration, refers to the Jewish exiles in Babylon and who were waiting for justice. They were waiting for justice. And it's used here in a distributive sense, emphasizing absolutely no exception. So each of these exiles, in other words, experienced God's wrath during the Babylonian invasion as evidenced by the fact that they're now living in Babylon uh, rather than the land of promise. So here's something we get to reiterate because it might happen to us here in America. You could be a faithful believer and have to suffer by association with the citizens of your godless nation, unrepentant godless nation. I'm not saying it's going to happen. It could happen. Look at the great men, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, we have also, we have Jeremiah, Obadiah, Ezekiel, and there were many others, okay? But they were a small remnant, and they suffered by association. But despite the fact that they were exiled to a foreign land, like Daniel and those guys, and Ezekiel, God used them mightily. In fact, they got that pagan, wicked pagan ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, saved by their actions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. And so, uh, God can use you in any circumstance. Just remain faithful. And even if we suffer by association with the, the, the godless people in this nation who are unrepentant about their godlessness, even if that happens and our government makes bad decision after bad decision, always stick with God. Walk with God who sits at the right hand, Jesus Christ who is God, who sits at the right hand of the Father and controls history. And he controls our circumstances individually do not ever despair. Just do what you're supposed to do. That's what we need to do. Walk with God. Love one another as God is, Christ has loved us. And when we talk about interacting with each other in the body of Christ, love your neighbor as yourself. Do your job at work as unto the Lord. Do your job as unto the Lord and not unto people. Okay? And so everything that you do must honor him. The way we work, the way we speak, the way we act, our priorities, our decision making, it should all be used to glorify God, honor God. That's one of the greatest witnesses we can give. But we need to do our job and let Jesus Christ, who rules the nations, do his job and deal with the nations, including our own. So this figure of Gentile nations uh, drinking from the cup of God's wrath appears in several places in the Old Testament. Isaiah 51, verses 17 through 23. Jeremiah, uh, chapter 25, verses 15 through 29. We have Ezekiel, verse, uh, chapter 23, verses 31 through 34. And Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 16. So this figure of the cup of wrath is everywhere in the Old Testament against used in relation to Gentile nations. So if you look at verse 16 in Obadiah, just as you drank... On my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually, and they will drink and drink and be as if they have never been. So we see that the word continually there, tamid in the Hebrew, in Obadiah verse 16, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. Continually is the word tamid in the Hebrew, and we have the word shata, which is translated here, shall drink or will drink, and it's used twice, and it describes these Gentile nations experiencing wave after wave after wave of God's wrath. In other words, these three words in the Hebrew are telling the Jewish exiles, and this would be encouraging to them, that God was going to give them justice. These three words are telling the Jewish exiles in Babylon that they experienced God's wrath temporarily. 
But these Gentile nations who were used by God to destroy them as a national entity will endure eternal punishment. The result clause at the end of verse 16 indicates that this continual punishment is a reference to the fact that they will no longer exist as national entities. Just as Judah, temporarily, only 70 years, did not exist as a national entity in the 6th century B.C. Now, the third prophetic declaration that we just read about in Obadiah 16 presents the result of the second prophetic declaration which indicates to us that these Gentile nations which took part in the destruction of Judah as a national entity in 586 B.C. are going to experience God's wrath continually with the result that they will no longer exist as national entities. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Daniel told us that in Daniel chapter 2. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. The British Empire, let's go way back, let's go. Babylon, where are they today? Medo Persia defeated Babylon, where are they today? Gone. Where's Alexander the Great and his Greek Empire? Well, Alexander didn't last very long. He died, allegedly, in a drunken stupor at 36 years of age, and his four generals took over. They got defeated by Rome. Rome disintegrated from within, like American culture is disintegrating. Same thing like the Roman Empire. We're very much like the Roman Empire in a lot of ways. Uh, it's not the Pax Romana, it's the Pax Americana that we've been seeing since World War II. And so here we have the United States is following in the same pattern. Just like Rome had tremendous prosperity, the, uh, the, the age of the Antonine Caesar, nobody has ever seen it. Well, the age of America after World War II, had nobody has ever seen anything like it. But with just like these other nations, including Rome, we've gotten arrogant, we've gotten proud, we're mocking Jesus Christ in our public discourse and the Bible, and he sits at the, at, in his, on his throne laughing with derision at these people as if they think they're going to get away with something. He's coming for them. But is the amazing, infinite grace of God those people who are sitting there slapping him in the face, shaking their fist at him with their gay and their lesbian things and LBGQ. I can't even remember. they got too many letters in the thing now. I just say, it's, I'm sorry, gay and lesbian or alternative, whatever you want to call it, you could say anything you want, He's coming for you. But despite that, he still loves these people. Christ died on the cross for these wicked people, and I was one of them, and so were you. So, God is not happy with the situation here, but again, his grace is just, it's just magnifying his grace. The United States, just like the Babylonian Empire, is following the same direction. And as I said before, do not despair. Okay, you can still do something about this. We're just walking and living the spiritual life and doing what you're doing today, meeting together. It's a testimony to the community around us. And what's even greater is, is that we practice what we, t we teach and preach in this, in this church. And we, we say, yeah, uh, this is what I, uh, this is how I, I live, I run my business with character and integrity. I don't cheat on my taxes. I, my Bible says not to do that. I, I try to do my business and according to integrity. I might cost myself some money, but at least I'm doing my, my, my business with integrity and character that honors the Lord. That's all I'm trying to, to, to please. You know, or I'm raising my children. I'm raising my children according to godly principles, not what the world says. Okay, you might be laughed at, but the Lord's not laughing. He's, he's, he's very pleased with you and he'll reward you. So we can do something for our nation by being the salt of this country. And we are the salt of this country as believers when we learn God's word, because you can't practice what you don't know. You learn it and you put it into practice. Here's the game plan, the Bible. Now we need to learn the game plan. And the more you learn the game plan and you know it, now you can get out on the field. Because if you don't know the game plan in the natural realm on a football team, you ain't getting out on the field no matter how talented you are or how fast you can run the 100. But if you learn the game plan, you can get out on the field. Okay? So the coach, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he wants us to learn the game plan and then get out there and on the field. But the people who, know, who do the greatest impact for him are serious, serious students of the Word of God like you all, disciples of Jesus. A disciple is someone who 
learns it and puts it into practice. And I'm supposed to set an example just for you to learning the, the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, putting it into practice, okay? And, and showing you this is my life. This is my what I'm dedicated to. I'm, that's my job. One of my responsibilities, study, teach, pray, exemplify godliness. So that's what we can do for the situation. And the rest is up to God what he's going to do. That's what Daniel and uh, Jeremiah did, but they, weren't, uh, they were under the law, not like us. We're not under the law. But nonetheless, they had a game plan. And so they lived according to it, and God took care of them and delivered them through all kinds of trials and tribulations. So these prophetic declarations recorded in Obadiah 16 were fulfilled in history since none of those nations who destroyed Judah in 586 B.C. exist anymore. Where are they today? They no longer exist as national entities, including Babylon and Edom. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 through 38, lists many nations existing in his day and age which would experience God's wrath. And several of these nations took part in the Babylonian-led invasion of Judah in 586 B.C. And so the prophecies in Obadiah 16 are obviously are not only directed against these Gentile nations, but also Edom, because she aided the Babylonian, led a coalition against Judah, as noted in Obadiah verses 10 through 14 we read. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was able to capture the city of Petra, that city uh, built into rock, uh, built out of rock, the, the great city of Edom, that great, that great nation that was thought to be impregnable. Look at it again. Just get it in your eyes, into your eyes, your head. Look at this terrain. An army like Babylon approached at Nebuchadnezzar's hordes. Look at this, this rocky terrain that they had to uh, figure out and how, so they could defeat Edom. Look at this, imposing for 6th century B.C. This is not 21st century. We could just fly a couple of choppers over a B-52 and those uh, buster bu uh, bunkers, whatever, bunker busters, whatever, and, and flat, we could wipe those things. We could take them out, no problem. But this is back in 6th century warfare. So this was quite incredible. And they thought, who's going to bother with us? Who's going to touch us? Who can take care of, who can take us on? Nobody. But guess what? God gave Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian-like coalition in the 6th century B.C. understanding into tactics on how to defeat this kind of enemy. Okay? Which is a lesson to America. We must not think that we're impregnable because of our nuclear weapons or our fantastic military with all its technology and the military-industrial complex. There's somebody working right now to defeat us. China, Russia, North Korea, okay? Must keep humble. And that, for us, what we need to do, we pray for our leaders. Keep reminding you that. Keep praying for them. Keep praying for the military. So Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was able to capture the city of Petra and take the citizens of Edom into captivity as they did the citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. Arabian tribes moved into Edom during the 6th century B.C., which forced the remnant of Edomites, who survived the Babylonian tax, they had to migrate west because of this influx of Arabian tribes. They became a province of the Persian Empire, Edom did, and were no longer a national entity. They, can, they were ultimately reduced by that great leader of the Maccabean dynasty in Israel, John Hyrcanus, and they lost their national existence under the Romans. They were cut off forever as a nation, though the land would again be populated. So the nations mentioned in the prophecies of Obadiah 15 and 16 are not referring to the nations which will exist during the 70th week of Daniel, which we'll talk about in the second session, but rather they're referring exclusively to the nations which took part in that Babylonian-led invasion. These nations would no longer exist as national entities, but a remnant of people from these nations continue to exist. Just think about that. What a message to the nations. You know, people look at these books at the end of the Old Testament, the, the minor prophets, they call them. They're not minor because of their content. They're minor because of their size. Okay? But they have, you read them, and I've done several of them. I've done Haggai, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all these books we're going to do here too. And they always have a message for the nations today, including our own. God is a God of justice. He's a God of wrath. He's also a God of grace. The reason why he hasn't destroyed China and Russia and us and North Korea, who starves its people, because he's a God of grace. 
who wants people, all people to repent. So the reference of Edom, to Edom here, if you, you notice that Edom's the, the subject of this prophecy, but I, as I mentioned before, there's a reference to Edom in Daniel 11.41, which is a passage describing the activities of Antichrist during the last three and a half years of the 70th week. And this uh, Edom is not a reference to the nation of Edom as it was constituted in Obadiah's day. Rather, the reference to Edom in Daniel 11.41 is referring to a nation which will inhabit the geographical region of Edom occupied in the 6th century B.C. So Daniel is thus using Edom from the point of reference of the Jew living during the 6th century B.C. So therefore, the references to Edom, Moab, and Ammon that we see in Daniel 11.41 would all be included today in what we call the present kingdom of Jordan. So people living in these nations at that time could very well be the descendants of the ancient nations of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. The Gentile nations led by the Antichrist, which will attack Israel and persecute her during the last three and a half years of the 70th week, will, like the nations who attacked Judah in the 6th century B.C., face God's righteous indignation. As we noted, the reference to drinking in verse 16 of Obadiah is alluding to, again, drinking the cup of God's wrath. Christ talked about in the Garden of Gethsemane, drinking the cup of wrath. And he, he suffered the wrath of God when he was abandoned by his heavenly father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was his scourging. He had two. And they would give you, they gave you the scourgings because they, if they, they, they uh, the, the, uh, like Pilate, he was hoping to have a little mercy on Jesus because he knew he was innocent. So he figured kill him in the scourging. But the scourging didn't kill him. So then he had to go through the crucifixion already weakened tremendously, and then physical death. He suffered the wrath of God in our place. So he knows drink, what that drink in that cup was. The thing is, he drank the cup for all the nations of all peoples, past, present, and future, so that none of these people, the nations, past, present, and future, would suffer and face it in the lake of fire forever. That's the love of God, that God would do such a thing for his enemies. So as we noted, the reference to drinking in Obadiah 16 is alluding to the, drinking the cup from God, of God's wrath, which refers again to experiencing God's wrath, which again, what's God's wrath? His righteous indignation towards evil and sin, since both are contrary to his holiness or perfect character. So in fact, God's righteous indignation expresses his holiness, which pertains to the absolute perfection of his character. And so we must keep in mind that if Edom and these other Gentile nations, such as Babylon, who destroyed Judah in 586 B.C., repented, the God of Israel would have relented. From he would have relented from exercising his wrath if they repented. Now we know this. How do we know this? How do we know this is true today? Even for our nation in China and North Korea and all these other nations throughout the world, on all, the, all the continents. Look at the Bible. Jonah. Jonah was sent to the Ninevites. That would be like asking, it would be equivalent, to, they would be like equivalent to asking a Jew, a Jew, Messianic Jew, to go into Hitler's Nazi Germany. Because Assyria, they were butchers. These people were unbelievable. They were famous. They would take, tie up a guy's arm, the Syrian army, take up another, his other arm, and they'd, they would great horse, equestrians, a horseman, tremendous, and they would, one arm to each, and they would pull, and horses would run, and the guy's arms would be gone. They did all kinds of weird stuff like that. They were crazy people, okay? And Jonah hated them, like most Jews of the day did. All of them did. He said, that's why he ran. That's why he went to Spain, which I heard is still good today. He ran over there. See you later, God. Guys, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm bringing you back. So he brought him back. And he knew that God would do this. He, that's why he ran. I know, God, that you're a merciful, compassionate gr God of grace, loving kindness. You, you, you don't take any joy in judging people. And I knew that if they repented, you would let those guys off the hook. And those people are murderers. I hate those people. Yeah, just think about that. The people you and I can't stand. Like some of the people, like that guy that dictated over there in North Korea. Yeah, man, I tell you what. If I had him one-on-one, -on -one, and I was like, seriously, dude? That guy, I bet he couldn't even beat me in arm wrestling, that guy. But you know what? And he's, he butchers his people. He, he, he starves his people. 
I've heard, I've talked to people who are in South Korea about this guy. I, I knew somebody. This guy, is, he, he's unbelievable. The guy before him was unbelievable. So these people you can't stand, God wants to save. Now, we'll close with this. Repentance for the unregenerate people of these Gentile nations. Now, they don't live in our day and age. Christ has come, died on the cross and rose from the dead. This is before that happened, okay? So, repentance, repentance means a change of mind, a change of attitude, metanoia, okay? And that means a change of mind literally, okay? So, repentance for the unregenerate people, unsaved people of these Gentile nations in Obadiah's day and age in the 6th century B.C., repentance would for them involve a change of attitude toward the God of Israel. How would they demonstrate that? By trusting in him and rejecting the worship of their gods, and this would result in a change of conduct by these people. In the ancient world, isn't it interesting? Israel is at the center of the earth. I was reading a passage in my devotional uh, in um, Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 6, and it's other places. God says, I put you in the center of the earth. And you know why? Because God wanted, he was trying to bring the nations, Gentile nations that were worshiping the gods that Satan and his army had put up to divert attention away from worshiping the true God, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he put them right there in the center of the earth to be to show this is what it is, you know, and bless them economically, politically, uh, just health-wise. He put them right there in the center of the earth so he could show this is what you get when you worship the true and living God, not these false gods that Satan has put up. So he wanted them to worship him. That's how they would repent. What's the repentance today for the nations? Trust in Jesus Christ because he is the God of Israel. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but the Lamb of God's coming back and the king of uh, the, the, the lion of Judah, the lion from the tribe of Judah, is coming back, and he is going to judge those who would not accept him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.